Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1987 film, The Princess Bride. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's video store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Uh, Barrett, this is a this is a such a classic from my childhood. This movie came out when I was 10 years old. Um, so this this has a, a special place uh, in my life. Uh, but let's start with you. What is your history with this film? Is this something that you were aware of when it came out that you saw in theaters? Yeah, I don't remember being aware of it at all, although I have to say the poster is kind of iconic. There's something about that poster that I feel like I saw the poster a lot, but I wasn't really aware of the film. I really kind of came to the film through the book. Um, my wife is a big fan of the book, so she always loved loved, loved, loved talking about and reading the book. And But neither she nor I can remember when we kind of graduated from the book to the film. I, I honestly can't remember the first time I watched it. It certainly would have been on uh, most likely VHS, but I can't recall when that was that's funny because that is also my experience i definitely did not see this as a 10 year old in the movie theater i don't know that i was really aware of movies coming out i don't i didn't go to the i watched a lot of movies either on television or um on vhs but i we didn't go to a lot so i don't know that i was aware it came out but at some point between 1987 and and graduating from high school it just became this thing that existed in the world that um I would see in whole and in parts. Um, it's a it's a, a, a really important movie. I think, especially to people of my generation. Um, I, I think this was one of those movies that uh, in college was just sort of on a lot. You, if you walk down a uh, a dorm hall and doors were open, this is the type of movie you would just hear on in someone's room. Um, so it's interesting. So you said so. Your first experience of this was with the book. Um, when did you when did you first read this book or first encounter the book? Yeah, that, yeah, that would have been after uh, sometime in the eighties, actually, when I was in graduate school. Uh, okay. And as I said, my wife kind of introduced me to the book. But before the movie would have come out, well, the, yeah, yeah, probably okay. right, probably before, right around the time the movie was made. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I've. I've read the book. I read the book a few years ago, and then I reread it this weekend because I wanted. I thought, well, I have this. It's it's a really quick read. If you've never read it, it people should read this. It's uh, if you're a fan of this movie, it's really fun to read. Uh, William Goldman's book, which he wrote in 1973, I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it is. It's interesting. To, I mean, Goldman. We should maybe talk about Goldman. He's one of the the great Hollywood screenwriters. Um, won the Oscar for Butch Casting the Sundance Kid, which is a great screenplay. Won the Oscar for um, All the President's Men, which is a great, great movie, mm. and is one of the famous um, kind of hired hands to come in, like script doctor people too, to come in and fix movies. My favorite. Uh, story along those lines is um, when Matt Damon and Ben Affleck uh, had the original script for Goodwill Hunting. Mm. Um, it got into the hands of Will William Goldman, and that movie was actually a lot longer. The, the, what ended up being the movie was really the first half of their screenplay. And Goldman said, "Just think about this. What if you got rid of the second half of this movie where?" Will Hunting becomes a spy and all this stuff. And it's like, what if it's just about this first part? And it was like, so he's, he's, there's a lot of Goldman stories about him as like this script magician who could just come in and say the three things that needed to be said to fix, to fix a movie. I, I, I should also say, um, well, first of all, the other thing I will say about that, Sam, is that Goldman said he only liked two of his film scripts. 
Uh, one was Princess Bride and the other was Sundance or was Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. And he also said Princess Bride was the only one of his novels that he actually liked. Um, but if people are interested, to go back to an earlier point, people are interested to the, how the film adapts the book. One of the extras on the Criterion disc is you can watch the film along with a comparison to the parts of the book that are being used, uh, which is kind of which is just kind of kind of fun. And what's interesting is it is, I mean, this movie, we'll talk about that. This movie has a framing device to tell this story. And the book also has a framing device, which is uh, not exactly the same, but, uh, but pretty, but, but similar, right? It is about, this is a story that has sort of been, uh, been passed down and, um, you know, kind of from generation to generation. Um, but what, but it, the, the framing device of the book is that this was a story that I think the, um, the author, the author's father had read to him, I, I believe, and he loved it as a child. So he bought it and gave it to his son and his son got partway into it and, and was just like, I don't, I'm not enjoying this. And then he went back and read the book and realized that his father had edited the book as he read it. Right. So, and only read the good part. So then, you know, the, the conceit of the novel is that he, the author is, um, Edit, uh, abridging the book so, so it's the good parts edition of the princess bride like just right. the good parts yeah the original is by s morgenstern um and actually sam what's interesting is that was a device that goldman hit upon because he had a writer's block hmm. he, had, he had started writing the princess bride which by the way came about in a response to his daughter's request he had a four-year-old and a seven-year-old and he said what would you like a story about and one daughter said princesses and the other said brides um, but anyway, he hit this, he hit this writer's block and then he started realizing, well, I'll just kind of, you know, write the stuff I want to write and kind of not worry about how it connects. And that's, that's what enabled him to keep going. And it ends up being a, a kind of, that ends up being kind of a commentary on how fairy tales evolve. Like a lot of the, the stories that are the basis for Disney animated movies. If you go back to the original versions, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot more darkness around them. There's a lot more sort of political commentary about the time, cultural commentary about the time. So it's this idea that he made up this story and then cut out the parts that would do that and be like, well, what, what are, what is the thing that, that comes down? Um, and it ends up, I mean, the, the book and the, the film end up being a commentary on the idea of, uh, fairy tales um, a little bit as well. Um, now the framing device for the movie is, like I said, is similar, but it's not quite the same. And I think, but I think it works really, really well. Which is a, uh, a a grandfather coming to read a story to his sick grandson, and it ends up touching on something we've talked about in in recent episodes, which is stories that are about sort of generations coming together. So we have the the grandfather played by one of my favorite actors of all time, Peter Falk. I told you before, I love Peter Falk. So you <laughs> gave me a Peter Falk movie. Um, and he is, you know, a kind of World War II greatest generation um, uh, figure. And his son is a is played by Fred's uh, pre-Wonder Years. Fred Savage is my generation, is, is, is a Gen Xer. And um, so you see these two generations coming together. And the, the the interesting thing is that Fred Savage would go on to play Kevin Arnold in The Wonder Years, who is the the character is sort of the perfect baby boomer, right? Like like right in the right in the pocket of being a baby boomer. So kind of get all the all those <laughs> generations involved there. But what that provides for, and 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 the, the book is this as well, but I think it works really well in the um in the movie, is it a pro it it allows for kind of this meta commentary as you're going through it, right? So it is a story being told, but it's also both the grandfather and the grandson 
commenting on the story. So, so we're aware that this is a story being told and that um, kind of in the spirit of the book that the grandfather might be picking and choosing a little bit. Cause there's moments where he's like, well, do you want me to continue? Do you want me to skip this part? Do you want, you know? And um, so, you know, and so, so I, I really love that because I think one of the, uh, ways, and I don't know if this this is not the first time this has happened in a in a movie, but it's probably for me it's the first time that I was aware of sort of experiencing a film that knew it was a film and like was kind of or or a film that knew it was telling me a story and it could comment on the stories it was telling, which has become such an important thing. I feel like in the pop culture I have consumed um, going forward, I think there's a lot of. Uh, you know, even thinking about something like Mystery Science Theater as this thing where you're watching a film, but also commenting on it so much of the the things that I love are versions of that. And it, I never I never thought about The Princess Bride as that, but it is. It is framed that way. There's a, there's a kind of a, I don't know if, you, if it's a paradox or an irony or a contradiction about, about that framing device, though, which it doesn't it doesn't lessen my enjoyment of it, but it kind of heightens a, a, a kind of uh, oddness about it. And that is that. The grandfather's argument is that books are better than TV. And of course, when he comes into the room, you have um, the grandson kind of slack jawed in front of a very primitive early video game. And so the argument the grandfather is making, and obviously the film illustrates this, is that books spark the imagination. And yet, of course, what we then get is not a book. We then get a film. Right. So, so, so it, it's a kind of it's it, so to me it's a kind of an interesting paradox about how it works that he uses a movie to convince us that books are better than movies. Right, uh, right. So. But I think that's why it's important that it, it started as a book and that it is a way to, it is a vehicle back to reading the book too. And and I, I do think the, the part of the way that this movie even looks, um, it, I wrote in my notes that it looks real, uh, excuse me, it doesn't look real, but it's per, it looks perfect. And what I mean by that is like, it looks like how you would imagine these stories if you weren't yourself a great artist or a filmmaker. I mean, mm -hmm. I think about the the perfect example of this is the when they're the the sword fighting scene on the the top of the cliff. You have this; it's such so clearly like a matte painted background, yeah. beautiful sky. The rocks don't look real, but it's like if I was ten years old, that's and and you were telling me the story. Like, I'm not Martin Scorsese. I'm not going to imagine this like amazing cinematography i'm actually probably going to imagine a thing like that i could imagine drawing that scene so it actually looks parts of it look more like the way i would imagine it rather than let us use the power of film to really create this fantasy world that in a way that's going to feel very real well and, I, and also um, just to skip ahead to the end of the film i think the last scene of the film reinforces that sam because the original plan after the grandfather finished reading the original plan was to have the grandson look out the window and imagine that he saw the four figures riding by in the white horses hmm. um, which would have been a slightly more expensive shot but instead they choose to close with the with the grandfather's as you wish uh which is of course means i love you uh and then it's just a fade out to the grandson on the bed so i think i think that's a really nice reinforcement of uh, of, of the way in which the film wants to bring you back to your own imagination yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the way that this, as we were talking about, that this story plays with the idea of fairy tales and things like this. And this is something that uh, 
is not exclusive to this film. And actually in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, we, we have another thing that uh, in pop culture, that's doing this in a very different kind of way. Um, it was so interesting watching this through the lens of having um, read some of and watched all of game of Thrones, which mm. is a, a much, you know, serious, darker uh, thing. But that what Martin is doing there is also saying like, I'm going to play with all the tropes of fairy tales, but I'm going to make this, this like brutal realism in that. So, <laughs> you know, there, uh, so like in this story, characters die and there's this moment of like, wait, that character can't die. And what Martin says is like, well, actually every character can die. And, and, uh, you know, so, so it's interesting to think about the tone of something like game of Thrones and something like this. And then another thing that it makes mm -hmm. me think of is like Monty Python, like mm -hmm. again, like playing with the Arthur legend. And I feel like this movie threads a needle between some of those things where it's not as absurd as, as Monty Python, which I love. And it's not as, self-serious as something like game of thrones which i also really enjoyed mm -hmm. but this is the tone i i kind of love to a certain degree that, that it's it is kind of doing uh something it's it's sailing between those and i think it does that really effectively yeah i, I kind of set myself the, the the task of trying to figure out what what other films were sort of like this in that what it does is it it, it kind of achieves a little bit of what we talked about in a different connection with Scotland PA. That is that it kind of s sends up or parodies a, wor a work, but at the same time, or a genre, but at the same time is a kind of homage to it. Um, and fortunately, one of the critics I read came to my rescue uh, and compared it to um, both a classic Danny Kaye film, The Court Jester, which has this whole routine about the trying to figure out which is the poisoned um, vessel which I think this film is, is drawing on. Uh, but also another one I think is kind of spot on is Galaxy Quest, uh, which is both a film that kind of sends up Star Trek, but it's also kind of an homage, homage to Star Trek. And then one other critic noted, noted that the only other film he could think of that kind of captured the tone of Princess Bride was the animated Shrek. So I think those, oh, are, sure. all, I think those are all kind of good analogies, although I don't think, I, I think the Princess Bride just probably does it better than any of those in its own yeah. way. It feels like a one of one, like like it's just like there isn't something else like this. Now it was interesting because I was thinking about the the way the framing device creates this kind of meta quality, and I was trying to think, is there within the story itself the characters don't seem to be aware they're in a story exactly, except for there's times where I feel like Wesley does. <laughs> Wesley feels the most knowing because there are moments where it's like they're facing danger, and he'll just say things like but we love each other. So of course, like, of course we're going to make it through this. We, we, we found each other. We have true love. So I, I think, uh, part of the ease of the way Wesley moves through the world is that I actually think he's aware that he's the hero of a story. Um, yeah, well, yeah. He says at one point to her, he says, this is true love. And then you think this happens every day. Yeah. So I, I think there, there is that self-aware quality. Well, there's also that when they're about to go into the fire swamp and she's, she's like, we'll never make it. And he says, well, you're only saying that because no one ever has, right? you know, and it's so, so it's, yeah. And I, I love, so, so, so I love the fact that it, it's not so self to throw in another sort of great parody artist. It's not so self-aware that it's like a Mel Brooks movie mm -hmm. where the characters would really break the fourth wall and maybe talk to you at a certain point. It doesn't go that far, but it, there is this sense that, you know you're in safe hands because you have Wesley, who is probably, I mean, to think about the way the story is, that's the grandfather too. It's like you're in safe hands because you know the grandfather's not going to tell you this story where 
evil evil wins you know even though it feels like it's going to um so so i really love the way that that kind of plays out yeah it's not uh, it's not carrie elvis in another performance of mel brooks film it's not men in tights right exactly <laughs> exactly uh in the same in the same way that i feel like the 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 setting feels like how you would imagine it there's a degree to which i feel like the casting also is that way it feels like every i think every person is could not be more perfectly cast mm. and even even having i mean thinking about if this is a story told to a 10 year old even having andre the giant in it who is um everything that i read read about this and, and listened i listened to a couple podcasts on this too like everybody comments on it's like it's not a he's not a good actor mm -hmm. but he's perfect for for what the character is and i can imagine as a 10 year old in 1987 somebody's telling you a story about this giant and like the only container you have for giant is Andre the giant. So you just cast. So it's, it's like, he's not even playing Fezzik. He's, he is just Andre the giant because that's what I can, that's what I'm capable of imagining placing there as this, as this character. Um, and then you just go down the line. And I, my, my, the first thing that, that I wrote as I was thinking about this is that this is a movie that is so dripping with charm. Every mm -hmm. character is so unbelievably charming. Andre, Andre the John or um, Fezzik is 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 charming. Mandy Patinkin is charming. Wesley is charming. Even Chris Sarandon and Christopher Guest have this degree of charm to them, yeah. and it's and you it's just uh, like it almost shouldn't work to have yeah. everybody just like it's just like charisma and charm, and it turns out like actually it's in this particular instance it's kind of great because it it's that perfect casting and charm with these really great performances and then this phenomenal script yeah you know because the things they say that are so charming and they match the way that they say them yeah well I, andre the giant was was always the only guy that that they wanted and at the time they were casting the film he didn't appear he was going to be available because he was tied up for like a five million dollar fight uh and then he got injured or something, or the fight got canceled, and so they were able to get Andre. Um, and the Carrie Elwes, they, they always wanted Carrie Elwes in the beginning as as well. Um, but the the casting note I love is the uh, is Robin Wright, who uh, at the time was starring in a soap opera called Santa Barbara, so she'd never been in a movie before. And they went to see her at her home, and I think it was Goldman who described that the front door opened, and there was this beam of sunlight coming in from behind her and he said she was backlit by god and they knew that was the one that, that they wanted and then it turns out she she pulled off the english accent uh very well and uh she was perfect yeah i think what goldman said is when he saw her he said that's what i wrote it's like yeah. like that that like in the same way he he actually wrote fezzig with uh, Andre the Giant yep. in mind, yeah, and and he he obviously didn't write uh, Buttercup with <laughs> Robin Wright in mind, but when he saw her, he was like, "Oh, that's what I was picturing when I wrote it." Yeah, yeah. It is interesting that the uh, the the what ifs around the Andre the Giant casting because because they couldn't get him. I mean, some of the names that got tossed around mm. um, seriously were things like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, <laughs> who would be tall enough. Um, uh, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger was another mm. name that was mm. was thrown out. And, you know, in both of those, those are both people who've been in movies. Kareem is very funny in Airplane, but it's like, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't work, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So so it actually, it was a lucky injury. He, the reason that fight got canceled mm. is because Andre injured his back, which is right. why... 
it was it's it was complicated to film some of the things he's in because he has to do physical things and apparently he could he couldn't right. lift anything. Yeah, yeah. But you know, he he you know he loved this experience. As you said, he wasn't a very good actor, but he he loved the experience. And uh, Mandy Patinkin helped him a lot with his line readings. But one of the things he said he loved about it was that it was the one time he didn't feel like a freak. It's like he didn't feel like people were looking at him like he was he he was an oddity. And somebody tells a story. I can't remember who it was. I, I don't think it was Goldman. But somebody tells a story about taking his daughters to meet Andre, and and one of them it was Rob Reiner. Was it Rob Reiner? Okay, yeah. And one of them just ran away screaming. And uh, and Andre said, that's okay. That's what I get. Either they run to me or they run away from me. So. <laughs> the other the other thing I thought about this movie as as I watched it, I am, I guess before I get to this, I'm going to, are you a fan of sort of fantasy as a genre? Not a lot. Uh, I, I, I can take it in a, in a little, but not a lot. W why not? Um, I, I, some, I, I feel like sometimes it's cloying, uh, sometimes, you know, I, I, I like to, I like to grant works of art, their kind of givens, like this is the, this, this, this is the, the world you've created and I kind of allow it to you, but sometimes fantasy just, um, goes too far for me. And sometimes it feels, sometimes the rules of a fantasy world feel arbitrary to me. It's like, oh, okay, well, let's, let's invent this or make me, and then you're never quite sure what's at stake because you're not exactly sure what the rules are. Yeah, I, and I, I would agree. I, I, this is not something that I, that's an automatic if somebody's like, oh, there's a great new fantasy book series or right. uh, fantasy movie, that that's not a selling point. I think they tend to get bogged down in, uh, in certain things. They can get bogged down in world building. They can get mm -hmm. bogged down in, if the filmmaker is really into creatures, it's like, okay, we're spending a lot of time with that. They can get bogged down in, action scenes there's lots of mm -hmm. there's lots of traps that fantasy can fall into so I, I was thinking about um movies that came out around this time in this in this in the sort of the fantasy genre things that i watched as a kid i think about things like willow and labyrinth mm -hmm. and the never-ending yeah. story and the dark yeah. crystal all of those things have a I like those things and I, and I, you know, they, they have a place in my heart cause I watched them as a kid. They all have this degree of self-serious tedium to it mm -hmm. where it's like, even if I'm interested in what's happening, there are these moments where it's like, this is really slowed down a lot for whatever to happen. And uh, this movie, I just was blown away by how, how much it clips along mm -hmm. like, and it clips along and I'm always excited for the next scene. I'm always excited to hear almost everything that people have to say again, like we keep circling back to it's a great script, but it like, that's a big piece of it is I think, I don't know that there's ever been, I've never encountered a, a, a work of, of fantasy mm. uh, filmmaking that just had such a phenomenal script and, and so layered. There's so many, there's like, um, there's so many lines from this that are famous and they get quoted. You've even mentioned some of them as we've, as we've talked about this. Um, but then there's like a third and fourth layer of things. It's almost like, in a weird way, like watching the big Lebowski where the more I watch that, the more like, I don't even, I didn't even notice this person said this. Mm -hmm. That's really funny. This time through, I actually went and pulled the screenplay from online and I read through the screenplay too. Cause there, cause I wanted to remember all the things that hit me as I was watching it that I didn't notice. And, and I ended up with like six pages of quotes and I'm like, I can't do that on the podcast, but I was just, I was just blown, uh, blown away by how much this clips along it even, Films I, like I love the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies, but as I go back and watch them with my kids, there are moments where I'm just like, we could 
we can pick up the tempo here a little bit. And this movie, uh, and maybe that's Rob Reiner too. I mean, we haven't, we haven't really mentioned him too much. Um, it, he does a great job of keeping the, the train moving, uh, in this, uh, in this movie, I think. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Rob Reiner in that respect, because I think one of the films, I mean, one of the reasons that you can tell Rob Reiner was the right person for this film is because of his first film, this is Spinal Tap. And 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 what This is Spinal Tap does in the same way that Princess Bride does is, is This is Spinal Tap is a really good rock documentary, but it's also a really good parody of a rock documentary. And it manages to do both of those things simultaneously. Uh, and it hits just the right kind of tone. So I think that that really tells you that he knows how to do this. And I think it, it and then you've touched on something else about fantasy that bugs me sometimes, Sam, and that is that it does it, it does take it takes itself so seriously. Uh, and it does it does get it can get kind of tedious. Um, and also, sometimes I just get tired. To be frank, I get tired of the look of it. And, and, and I think what I love about Princess Bride is, first of all, it's shameless about the fact this is a cheap looking production. We're not going to try to pull anything over on you. And it's, it is cheap looking and okay because of what you described earlier. And that is because we know this is what, this is what Fred Savage is imagining as a boy. And so it, it makes perfect sense. So the, so the fact that there's a frame around this world in a way that there isn't around, say, Lord of the Rings, I think that just changes everything. It's interesting to think about uh, Rob Reiner in, in terms of... Um... Uh, in, in terms of Spinal Tap, because I think about, um, I have a, my, I have an uncle who is a, a studio musician, was a touring musician for a long time, and he actually talks about how he can't watch Spinal Tap because it's too real. And he's like, <laughs> all the things you think are funny are real. And this is not a Rob Reiner movie, but it's a Christopher Guest movie. I have an aunt who's a playwright. This is mm. the, my, my uncle's sister is, is the, is a playwright. She says the same thing about waiting for Guffman where she's just like, oh. it's actually like, like these things that you think are funny. is true. So I kind of wish I could find a pirate or a swashbuckler or a giant and say, watch this movie. Is it hard to watch? Because it turns out it's too real. <laughs> So do, do you know the other connection between this film and Spinal Tap in addition to the obvious one that Rob Reiner, Rob Reiner made both? Well, you, I mean, um, you have you have a couple actors who are in both for sure. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm what, what I'm thinking, yeah, Christopher Guest, of course. But what I'm thinking of is, uh, you, well, the, the, the soundtrack was done by Mark Knopfler of mm -hmm. Dire Straits, right? And Knopfler agreed to do the soundtrack for Reiner if... Reiner put the hat that he wore yes. in, 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 in the film, the hat, hat he wore in Spinal Tap in the film. And, and actually, so if you notice in, in the bedroom behind the grandson is the cap that Rod Reiner wore. And it turns out he didn't have the original cap anymore. He had to kind of recreate it. So he painstakingly recreated it. And then afterwards, Knopfler said, I was kidding. <laughs> I was kidding. <laughs> so so, so my, my, my eye was drawn to that cap every time it was in frame. And I realized, it gets back to what you said about not noticing things. I never noticed that. Never thought about that before. But every time that, that the camera hit that in the, in the bedroom, I thought, oh, yeah, that's the cap he wore in Spinal Tap. I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't notice the cap when I saw it. But it's for a, it's for a specific reason, which is... If you were a 10-year-old boy in 1987 and you look at Friends, Fred Savage's room, it is such a time capsule. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, I, like, I, 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 there are moments where I just paused on those scenes to look at the toys on the shelf or the posters on the wall or just the way that that room looked, even the Walter Payton jersey that he's wearing. Everything is like, this is, it is so perfectly set decorated for 
maybe like an aspirational version of my childhood. I mean, they weren't <laughs> always things that I had, but it's like, oh, I remember wanting that. And I, a couple things like, oh, I had that. And, um, it's, uh, and that, that, that hit me. Cause I hadn't, I, I remember the Peter Falk, Fred Savage framing device, but I didn't remember that room. And I, I just took a tour of that room when I was watching this. Um, and, and, uh, it's a, it's a great, it's a great time capsule. And I'm glad that the spinal tap hat is the, the Marty DeBerg spinal tap hat is there as well. <laughs> um, one of the other things that I love about this movie that I think makes it amazing is, I mean, we talked about it as kind of this dream cast, but it's like, there's, there's even layers of casting. So you have your, your, your two real leads, uh, Carrie Ellis and, and Robin Wright, who are um, relatively unknowns when this movie comes out. I mean, they're, they're, Robin Wright was in Santa Barbara. Carrie Ellis was in, um, I think, uh, he was in a couple movies, but not like a, weren't like big stars, but they look like they should be movie stars, mm. right? Like, like Carrie Ellis has a, not a great career after this. It's okay, but not, he doesn't become, you know, a, a great leading man, but man, he looks like it in this movie. And Robin Wright mm -hmm. actually goes on to have a great career right. um, uh, after this, but then you get to the secondary characters. Um, and this is where the movie really shines that it, it creates all of these moments for um, characters who could easily just be throwaways. So you think about like, um, Mandy Patinkin as Anigo Montoya, Wallace Shawn mm. as Bassini, Andre the Giant, uh, Chris Sarandon as Humperdinck. So you have that level of characters. Then you have tertiary characters like Billy Crystal, who shows up for one scene and just sort of blows the doors off the movie for a moment. You have Christopher <laughs> Guest, who's like, why is he in this movie other than he's a friend of of Rob Reiner's? I'm sure. <laughs> um, you have uh, Peter Cook and Mel Smith in these really small parts, and then you have I don't know what comes after tertiary. Um, you have one of my favorite moments in the movie is when out of nowhere for for no reason it's already a super funny scene. You have Carol Kane come in, and it's like she flies out of the background, and and it's like <laughs> we're doing this. So it's like it's like they just were like. Why not? Why don't we just throw one more fastball at this thing? And 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 it and it just heightens that scene even more. And I I love the I love the way that everybody that I just named shines ha, has not has moments where they are the centerpiece of the movie for a little bit. Yeah. And of course, the Miracle Max scene. You know, you talked earlier about the script, but the Miracle Max scene is where Billy Crystal takes off with the most of that scene is Billy Crystal ad libbing, and that's that's just absolutely brilliant. Um, the, the, uh, the scene that, that I think was the first scene that I loved in this movie. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not, I'm certain I'm not the only person who felt this way was, uh, was the, the Wallace Shawn. So we have the, the three duels. And I remember as a kid watching the, the Wallace Shawn, um, battle of wits. Mm. Um, and I think this was maybe the first time as a, as a kid that I was like, oh, I'm more interested in what people are saying. Like I'm getting the kind of grown up humor um, in, in this scene. Cause it is interesting. So, so it's preceded by like, by the sword fighting scene, which as a 10 year old should be right up your alley. Like that's exciting. And then you have this wrestling scene and then you have the battle of wits. So you get all these different things. And I remember feeling at the time that the Wallace Shawn scene was just the best. And as a 10 year old, that was, was a was like a moment of growing up that I'm actually more interested in the people sitting there talking. And that actually tells me a lot about the kind of movies that I like now. I find myself, I realize, well, I don't really like action movies very much. What I like are any movies where I, where, where two people are talking and, but it is a battle in the same kind of way. 
I, I think it's one of the I think that's one of the keys to why the film works at two different levels, Sam. It's what we've talked about this in the past is it's kind of the Bugs Bunny effect uh, in that the Warner Brothers cartoon effect in that kids are responding to the cartoons at one level and adults are responding to them at another level. And so I think a lot of what happens, you know, why can why can a kid and an adult both enjoy this film? And even though, as you said, as a kid, you can't interested in what people are saying. I think a lot of the film for kids works at the level of the action that's happening. Uh, and then there may be some interest in what's being said, but at the same time, there's a deeper there's a deeper pleasure that adults can actually take in some of the dialogue, and of course, in the fact that the film is winking at the genre, which I'm not sure a lot of kids get. I think right. I think kids tend to take the film pretty straight, but that's okay. It works pretty straight, but it also works as a send up of the genre at the same time. What was interesting watching this again, though, was how I still love the Vicini scene, but what I realized is actually the dialogue in the Inigo Montoya fight and the Fezzik fight is as funny. I don't think I've before watching it this time, I think I would have said, Oh yeah, he does this and this. And like, but I, I, I didn't realize that when going back in and read it, reading the script this morning, that was the stuff that jumped out at me is how funny, especially the Nigo Montoya fight is the mm -hmm. whole idea of like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pull you up. Well, you know, take some time to catch your breath. Then he tells this story um, and he talks about um, how there's, there's not a lot of money in the revenge game. And then they go on to have this fight and you have the, you know, I'm not really left-handed. I'm not really left-handed, but there's just, but there's all of this stuff that they're um, all the stuff that they're saying while they're sword fighting, even if they, even if the sword fighting wasn't great, which it is phenomenal. Yeah. It's still such a, like that's still such a funny scene. And even the Fezzig scene the conversation is so funny. I mean, Fezzik asks him like, why do you wear a mask? Were you, were you, was your face burned by acid? And he's like, well, no, I think they're actually very comfortable. And I think in a year, everyone's going to be wearing masks. And the whole idea of like fighting sportsmen, like, and all those things are, or uh, I was worried about fighting you because I'm used to fighting 12 men and you do something <laughs> different when you're fighting one. And yeah, the uh, the line about the mask certainly resonated in COVID nineteen, didn't it? Yes, yes. Um, there, there's a the uh, the Criterion edition, which I mentioned before, which I certainly commend to people if they want to see a really good edition of the film. Uh, the Criterion edition has a little essay by uh, the New York Times writer Sloan Crosley, um, and she talks about uh, her eight year old niece. Uh, this is a contemporary story. Her eight year old niece being a fan of the film and having a birthday party with a princess bride theme. And this gets back to what you're saying about the dialogue. The name tags were, hello, my name is Indigo Montoya. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And what, what's great about Inigo, though, is at the same time that it's he, it like he, I think that Mandy Patinkin performance is so funny and he's got such great lines and it's so well performed. Like more so than the Wesley Buttercup stuff, like the emotional heart of the movie is this Inigo Montoya revenge story. Um, and I just, I think that that's like genuinely fairly interesting and powerful. And then it gets this great payoff where after he finally kills the six fingered man, instead of feeling joyous, he's mm. it's like, he's depressed yeah. because he'd spent his whole life doing this. And then there's, uh, the, the, the great, it's, it's one line, which tells you everything about the rest of his life. When he's like, when uh, Wesley says, have you ever thought about piracy? <laughs> and you just think like. Oh, perfect. Like he's now been given a new purpose in life. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, and I just like, I, I, I love, I, I was really drawn to the, the, the Inigo Montoya story so much more, um, this time around. Um, there's two, two moments of physical comedy that 
I think I'd forgotten both of these that stood out to me um, because again, it's a, it's a movie that's so talky in terms of its humor, but there were, I mean, there's lots of physical moments of, of physical humor, but, but two that jumped out at me um, three, one of them is, I don't know that I love it's probably two Mel Brooksy is during the sword fighting scene when they do the gymnastics part. Yeah. Like that feels like, this is from a different movie. Interestingly, though, that's the only part that uh, Patinkin and and mm-hmm. Elvis didn't do. Right. They did. They did. They worked like crazy to learn that. Learn the sword. The sword choreography. But two scenes that jumped out at me. One is the first time that uh, Anigo confronts the six fingered man, and and the whole movie's been building to this scene, and he says the line, and Christopher Guest looks at him, pulls his sword out, and runs away. <laughs> And it's just like like that. I fell off my. Ch- I'd forgotten that that's what happens, and I was like, "That is very funny," because mm-hmm. it, it, it also. It, but it also tells you something about his character too. That, yes, that yes. at his core, he is a coward who beat up on a six-year-old boy or whatever, or eleven-year-old boy or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like that is. It's it's a perfect moment, but it is truly a funny moment. And the other one is is probably the most Monty Python esque mm-hmm. moment is when. Um, when buttercup pushes Mm -hmm. the dread pirate down and he's rolling and says, as you wish. And she realizes, and to chase him, she just jumps and rolls down the hill. (laughs) And it's not even like she tries to keep her footing. She's like, I guess that's how we're going down the hill. And I had never noticed that moment before Mm -hmm. It, it never hit me. And I just thought that that's where it tipped towards the sort of Python absurdity. And I just thought that is a beautiful comedic moment. Yeah, that that was a laugh out loud for me, and I think I think you're right. It, it's just the way, she, as as if the only way to get down the hill is to roll is to roll down the way he just did. I just yeah. I just I love that. And it's such a punishing roll down the. It's not even like she's barrel rolling. It's like a headfirst dive. Yeah, but it's also a visual pun. They're truly falling in love. Right? Yes, 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 absolutely. <laughs> well, like I said, I have a thousand things in my notes, but I'm going to turn things over to you. There are things you want to talk about with this movie. Oh my gosh! So, and I'll try to hit a number of them, Sam. Um, one is uh, there's a recent book called, which you may be interested, in, called "The Dharma of the Princess Bride: hmm. What the Coolest Fairy Tale of Our Time Can Teach Us About Buddhism and Relationships." Um, and and one of the one of the things that I, I found interesting about this is um, uh, the re- this is a review in the New York Times, and he uh, he kind of signals they they mentioned uh, several of them, and one of them was, and I never thought about it this way, but the the doctrine the Buddhist doctrine of reincarnation, uh, the idea that Wesley dies and is reincarnated as the as the Dread Pirate uh, Roberts, but then of course he's reincarnated again as Wesley. I I just I just think it's kind of cool that there's this Buddhist perspective on on the film. Um, there's also a couple of, uh, to put it kind of in context of the 1980s, um, one of the things, one of the comments that Roger Ebert makes about uh, about the year the film came out, which was marked, for example, by Wall Street, uh, the great film about greed, is um, Ebert says uh, the year 1987 saw more different movies open in America than any other single year in decades, fueled by the video boom Producers saw a good chance of recouping their investments one way or another, and although much of what they made was trash, there was also more good films last year than usual. But it seems to me that that's one reason why a studio might take a chance on a film that uh, maybe isn't going to reach a mass audience, but they realize they've got the video uh, distribution as well. And then I want to introduce a couple of sour notes, and then I'll end with a nice story. Um, A sour note is one of the rare 
um, contemporary pans of the film was Dave Kerr writing, I think he was writing in Time Magazine at the time. He says, Reiner has perhaps created the definitive American film of the late 1980s, a movie wholly and explicitly concerned with surface effects. Kerr does not like this film at all. And, and he feels like there's a disconnect, which I don't see, but he feels like there's a disconnect between the kind of narrative the grandfather is offering and what he calls kind of David Letterman-ish humor within the film itself. Uh, I don't think it's a fair criticism, but it's his. Um, the other thing I have to mention as a criticism of the film is um, I'm very conscious of the fact that you and I are two white guys sitting here enjoying this film. Um, the film is, um, is, very, is obviously completely non-diverse in terms of casting, so very 80s-ish in that respect. But also, um, it's not a film that feminists love. Um, it's because but Buttercup is completely passive. Um, she doesn't even muster the energy to conk, conk one of the rodents of an unusual size on the head when Wesley is wrestling with it. And there is a, there is a certain passivity about her character, which you can maybe excuse because that's the way fairy tale princesses are. They tend to be passive. Um, but anyway, so I realize that this is a film that some folks listening to it might say, well, you guys have missed the whole point that in this film, there's only, uh, only a few women and they don't really do much. So, okay. So, uh, I will end with a, a great story where a woman came up to Rob Reiner and once and said, um, princess bride saved my life. You know, I don't know if you know the story or not. She was caught in an avalanche with several other people. Uh, and to survive, she basically, we, she basically told the entire movie uh, until until they were rescued. So there's all kinds of Princess Bride stories like that. Well, that, that I, I like that as a wrap up story because the the last thing I had in my notes um, is that I feel like this is the most quoted movie um, in my life. Yes. Not even that I do it, but just the the number of things that have worked their way into the lexicon of my family and my sort of extended family that we don't even think of as princess bride references. Like, like um, I'll give you two examples from this weekend. So um, uh, this weekend I drove up to my, my family's up at the family cabin and I drove up to be with them. And on my way up there, I, for the first time in my life, I hit a deer when I was driving oh. little, little, it was just a, a really small deer. I don't know why that makes me feel worse that it was a little baby, mm. but it was, but it also means that my car made it through. <clears throat> but when I got to the, um, when I got to the cabin and I was talking to my father-in-law and I was telling him this story and he said, well, did you see where it went? And I said, yeah, I mean, it, it was dead on the road. And he said, well, it was only mostly dead. And like, I didn't even think of that as a princess bride reference. It's just in that family. When you mention somebody's something is dead, of course, you're going to say, well, it's only mostly dead or maybe it's only mostly. Dead. And then when I left to go home on, um, on Friday or on uh, Monday, um, you know, everybody's there and you're saying goodbye and you leave and mm. It is requisite that somebody says, have fun storming the castle whenever <laughs> anyone leaves. And again, we don't even think about it. It's just like, it's almost a race to see who can say it first. And there's a million other lines from this movie that, 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 uh, that fit like this. If anybody says something, a sentence that ends in, I mean it, you have to say, anybody want a peanut? Like you just have to do it, you know? So, so I feel like, like it has, it has wormed its way into my consciousness in that way. Um, so it's, this is a movie that I just, I truly, truly, uh, love. And I've was, it's, it's been fun to share this with my kids over the years. And 
uh, it's one that's just really fun to go back to. Yeah. And I think it's great. I think it, do, it does drive you back to the movie, but it also drives you back to the book, as, mm-hmm. as, you, as you already suggested. So I think it, I think it, it does justice to both the medium. Media. Yes, absolutely. Well, Barrett, we are going to take a little break here. Um, talking about uh, summer and summer vacations, I realize we have done 64 movies in probably 67 weeks. So <laughs> I, I think uh, I think everyone's due for for a little break. So we're gonna we're gonna be off until I think August Sunday, August 8th will be our next episode. Um, and then I think there's another week off in August and then we'll, we'll kind of get back to our, our regular schedule. Um, but what do you have for us for the month of July to, uh, to watch as we're preparing for this August 8th episode? Well, it, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, of a change of pace. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm I want to launch a series on movies that kind of think a little bit about, um, uh, human potential, think about technology, uh, think about the limits of technology. So I, I want to, and this is going to actually be our third um, uh, our, our third, uh, Ethan Hawke film, which, um, I didn't realize I was an Ethan Hawke fan, but I guess I am. <laughs> so uh, I want to go back to 1997's Gattaca. Ooh, this is a movie that I have never seen. I've heard a lot of, I've heard a lot of people reference it's, it's, um, but I've never seen it. I'm very excited, uh, very excited to watch this movie. Um, well, Barrett, this has been so delightful. This was this was such a pleasure to to watch and to uh, to prepare for. Um, so thank you so much for recommending it. Thank you so much for this conversation. I hope you have a wonderful um, month of July. And we will be back on August 8th to talk about Gattaca in the video store. Mm-hmm.